Well, my first real job was a caddy at a golf course. It was a great learning experience for a 13-year-old boy because golf, like all sports, has a lot of rules, but it also has some etiquette. Where you're supposed to stand, when you speak, and how to give or not give advice. Being a caddy is hard work. You learn to navigate different personalities and skills. I carried a golf bag for some amazing golfers, just a few. And then I carried the bag for a number of really bad golfers. I listened quietly on the golf course as grown men gossiped, bragged, and ruthlessly teased each other. When you're carrying a bag, spending four hours with men, you get a chance to see relationships develop, and I actually saw some business deals get done. But when you're a caddy, you need to know your place. You need to blend into the scenery. The most important part of your job, and quite frankly, the most lucrative, is finding a lost ball. Part of your role as a caddy is to watch the flight of the ball and to determine where the ball landed and attempt to secure it. And I learned an important lesson, one that earned me a lot of gratitude with golfers. Finding a lost golf ball is much easier when you are in an elevated position on a small hill or some spot where you can look down and maybe back on the ball. And so as we were approaching a spot that we knew the ball had gone but we weren't sure exactly where, I would separate myself from the group, find a higher point of view that would then give me a purview of where the lost ball was. You see, sometimes being so close to the ball meant that you couldn't see it, but with some distance and with some height, you gained a different perspective. Sometimes seeing things from a different vantage point is extremely helpful. That's not just true of being a caddy, that's true of life. That's true of your spiritual development. And that's also true of the book of Revelation. We gain perspective, we can see where we're off, we can see what's missing when we're located in a different place or a different vantage point. That's what this gathering on Sunday is about. You've been working all week, you've been drinking the cultural Kool-Aid, so to speak, of what's really important and what really matters, and then you come into the house of the Lord and you're reminded, no, 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 he's worthy, I'm not. You're reminded Jesus is king. You're reminded of another kingdom. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle, ends his entire series by welcoming spiritual pilgrims with a phrase, come further up, come further in, as they discover their final and beautiful home. So here we are in Revelation 5, and it's a perspective changer. Since introducing us in chapter one to the revelation of Jesus Christ, John has showed us what Jesus is like, who he is, and then in chapters two and three, we saw the seven churches, and then in chapter four, we heard these words, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That was Revelation four and verse one. It's an invitation to a change of perspective, to come further up, come further in to understand what's happening, 
behind the curtain. John invites us in Revelation 5 into the throne room of heaven, but not just for a tour, church. He invites you to come into the throne room of heaven for a very important lesson. Before he goes on to explain other really important elements of this revelation of what is yet to come, John is given, and so are you, so am I, an opportunity to see what is really happening. And in Revelation 5, we get a glimpse in the throne room. And what we see is this. We see the plan of redemption that leads to worship. There's a divine plan that relates to redemption and its destination is the glory of God. It's the plan. Can I remind you? There's a plan. Your life may have been hard last week. There's a plan. And the plan is redemption, the rescuing of sinful people, the redeeming of the whole created order that leads to worship, the declaration he's worthy. So today what I want to do is unpack those three words, plan, redemption, and worship, and help you understand what John sees and what the message is in this glorious text. So first, the plan. John is brought into the throne room of heaven where he encounters a scene a scene that reveals an important scroll. When in chapter four, the centerpiece was a throne, the centerpiece in Revelation five is this scroll. John leads with what he sees. Verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John is receiving a revelation and he's attempting to help us understand this vision of what he sees because there's a message here. He returns to the one seated on the throne, the same vision that we saw in chapter four of God and his glory, but now the focus shifts towards this scroll. The scroll is located in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And the text tells us that it's written within, it's written on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. A scroll with seven seals would have been a familiar image for Christians who were receiving this letter. It combines Old Testament imagery from Ezekiel and Daniel. Listen to Ezekiel 2. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And this is Ezekiel. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So John sees the fulfillment of the kind of image that manifests itself in the book of Ezekiel. Same is true in Daniel 12. 
When Daniel hears these words, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So this scroll represents more than information and even more than just scripture. In historical context, this scroll is the divine plan for the world. It represents the sovereign rule of the one who sits on the throne. That's clearly the implication in line with what we see in Ezekiel and Daniel. But what's more, notice that it's not only a scroll, but it's sealed with seven seals. As we'll see next week, these seals are all connected to judgment. And when every one of these seals are open, a judgment follows. So... This is a plan, a divine plan, a sovereign plan for the world, and there are seven particular judgments connected to it. The scroll includes then both deliverance and judgment. That's really important for you to understand. God's plan involves deliverance and judgment. This is not a new theme, church. Trace it through the Old Testament. Think of another moment when God delivered his people through judgment. The Exodus. We have the 10 plagues where God reverses the Egyptian gods and uses their gods on themselves in order to take his people out and to deliver them. Think of the Passover lamb who was the protection from judgment. Fast forward into the New Testament. Think of Jesus on the cross. God delivers through the judgment that was poured out on Jesus. So make no mistake about it, God's divine plan always involves deliverance and judgment. You may be here today, not yet a Christian, and you think that God is all love. He is love, but his love requires judgment and justice. If there's no judgment and there's no justice, there can be no love because the love is fake. So when the seals are released, it's not the overflow of an angry God. It is a God filled with love who cannot allow unloving things to continue. It would be unloving for him not to bring judgment. And this is not new. This is the way God has always worked, and now we see in the book of Revelation the way in which this takes place. What happens next is stunning. It's designed to be dramatic. Please don't read this from a distance. Let yourself be brought in. Verse two, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Uh, An announcement happens in the throne room. This is similar to what happened in Daniel 4 with another angel who made a proclamation about judgment. But in Revelation 5, this angel loudly proclaims an important question, a critical question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Do you understand the question? The angel is asking who is qualified to fulfill the divine plan of God. There's a plan, a plan for deliverance, a plan for judgment, and the question is, who will bring it to pass? You might wonder, why doesn't the one who sits on the throne, why doesn't God himself open his own scroll? Why is this question even asked? 
Nancy Guthrie answers it when she writes this, if God were to open his own, rather open on his own, with no mediator or protector, the scroll that pours out wrath, no one would escape the punishment that would be poured out. Someone must come into this dramatic heavenly scene to demonstrate the justice of God against evil as well as the sacrifice of God to accomplish salvation. Someone is needed to absorb judgment to provide redemption. Now look at verse three. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Verse four, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So the question goes forth, who is worthy? John knows the answer. But according to verse three, there's no one found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And seeing this reality, John begins to weep. Why is he weeping? Why is he brokenhearted? One possibility is that John weeps because he rightly expects Jesus to step forward. He hears the statement, who is worthy? And he knows, he's looking. And the silence and the lack of activity is frightening. Maybe he's weeping in this moment because of disappointment or confusion or fear. Maybe, maybe John thinks, oh no. What if it's not true? Have you ever thought that? What if, what if what I believe isn't true? Another possibility along with this is that John weeps because he feels the tension of God's redemptive plan being thwarted. He feels in this moment, perhaps, an unopened scroll means no justice, no deliverance, no redemption, no salvation, the whole world never redeemed. I wanna encourage you to not just study this portion and to examine it intellectually, but I want you to be brought into the full emotion of this text. If you're a Christian, I want you to think with me where your life would be right now without Jesus. Just think a moment. What would you love if you didn't know God's grace? What kind of man would you be? What kind of woman what kind of single adult would you be? What, what kind of married person would you be? If you didn't know Jesus and you had no knowledge about the forgiveness of your sins, where would you get your identity? And for that matter, what in the world would you do with your guilt? Imagine how empty your life would be. And this text begs us to be moved about that reality. 
Connecting it to where we were last week with REACH, realizing that 1.6 billion people are presently in that very condition. It's no wonder John is weeping. Because this plan is everything. This plan is the essence of what grace is all about. And if no one is able to open the scroll, then life isn't worth living. This is the plan of God, and this is more, church, than just a blueprint for the created order. It's more than a plan for how things can get better. Listen to me, this plan is the means by which the devil is defeated, sin is forgiven, and people are delivered. This plan is not a plan, it's the plan. It is the glorious, powerful, sovereign, gracious plan of God to rescue people who need to be rescued from themselves. And if this plan is true, which it is, you can both rejoice and take a deep breath because the finished work of Jesus is already operational in the lives of those who put their trust in him. There's a plan, secondly, Redemption. Feeling the tension of verse four, we then get to verse five. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. While John is weeping, one of these elders, these 24 elders seated around the throne, delivers to John some incredible news. He tells John that he should stop weeping Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Again, here's references back to the Old Testament. In Genesis 49, the tribe of Judah is described as a fierce lion who will have authority over the world. In Isaiah 11 and verse 10, there's a prophetic promise that from the stump of Jesse will come a root which will beckon God's people to come to his resting place. So here is this lion who has conquered and this root that is victorious. The point of the proclamation though should be clear enough. John should stop weeping because there actually is someone who can open the scroll, who is the fulfillment of God's promise, and who has conquered. Oh, how this must have made John's heart leap. I knew it. I knew it was true. I knew it was real. But the image that follows must have been so surprising. Remember John's previous image of Jesus? In chapter one, he's got a white robe, golden sash, hair that's white, eyes flaming with fire. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He turns, verse five, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. In the epicenter of God's throne is a lamb with all of the marks of having been sacrificed. This happens over and over in the book of Revelation. John 
hears something, he turns, and it's surprising. He has an idea of what he's going to see, he turns, and it, it, Revelation is designed to continually blow your mind. The lion is actually a lamb. And that small little root, the seven horns and seven eyes, those speak to the lamb's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, and his omniscience, his all-knowingness. So understand this. Conquering came through sacrifice. There's a few of you that need to write that down because when you take it on the chin this week or are required to be humble again, you need to be reminded that God's plan has been accomplished not through being macho or brash or rude, but through sacrifice. Conquering has come through sacrifice. Once again, we see the way that the plan of God is meant to be shocking and counterintuitive. Commentator Ian Paul summarizes it so well when he writes this, here is the one who fulfills the hopes of God's people Israel, the promised anointed Davidic king who has come. Here is the one who is fierce and powerful enough to conquer their enemies and to tear them apart. And yet when John sees him, he's like a weak and vulnerable lamb who's been slaughtered just like the Passover lamb eaten by the people, the suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions, the lamb is offered as an atoning sacrifice. Here is the one who was slain and who now stands and shares the throne with God and with him sends the spirit to enact his will on the earth. So here is the plan of redemption in full display. At the center of the throne, the conqueror, the lamb, the root, is a lamb with a gash on its neck who's not laying on an altar but standing in a position of authority. Here, here is the Passover lamb who is the means by which deliverance and judgment come. Here is the lion of Judah who conquers his enemies and covers his people by sacrifice. This, this must have been an awe-inspiring moment must have blown John's mind, but it gets even better. According to verse seven, the sacrificial lamb moves towards the throne. Verse seven says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember the previous pronouncement, the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, now it's clear who is. The lamb is moving towards the throne. He takes the scroll, and this is more than a handoff. This is more than just an action by the lamb. The taking of the scroll means the lamb is worthy to do so. The previous question wasn't who can take the scroll. The previous question is who is worthy to take the scroll. There's no one in the entire universe qualified for this kind of action. There's only one, the only sacrificial lamb, the only person qualified to take the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne is the slain lamb. It is Jesus. Can I remind you why he's worthy? 
God's atonement for you, Christian, is only possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 9, says it this way, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God, so that we might become, rather, the righteousness of God. The means by which forgiveness comes to people is because somebody else paid your debt. Somebody else rescued you from judgment and delivered you, not by what you did, but by what he did. That is the story of God's goodness and grace. It's what transforms a Christian's life. It's God's plan for deliverance and judgment. Jesus took your judgment so you could be delivered. That's the essence of the gospel. It's the good news. It changes everything about you. Jesus takes your judgment so you could be delivered. And the thing is, is he's not only going to cleanse you through the sacrifice of Jesus, God has a bigger aim. The whole universe doesn't revolve around you or me or us. No, no, we're just part of the plan. God's aim is to remove every presence of sin and death and to cast the devil out of the world. The scroll and this lamb are the means by which God is declaring, I'm taking back what is mine. And he does it, how? Through sacrifice. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you've not yet repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, dear friend, it is really important for you to understand this moment in Revelation because it is the key to the entire book, it's the key to the entire Bible, and for that matter, it's the key to your life and your entire eternity. Like, this is really, really important. Hear me, God's plan of redemption, his desire to forgive you of your sins, doesn't come without cost, but here's the good news. It doesn't come to cost you, it comes at the cost of Jesus, and the miracle of God's grace is those who get this, understand that they're sinners, and look to Jesus, a divine exchange happens where God takes Jesus's righteousness and gives it to you, and he takes your judgment and gives it to Jesus, and those who put their trust in Christ are forgiven of their sins, welcomed into the kingdom of God, and declared to be the children of God, when they don't deserve it. And the question is, aren't you ready to come to Jesus today? There is a glorious plan for redemption. And today is a part of that story. And yet there's even more. A plan, redemption, Finally, worship. God's plan is not merely deliverance. It's not merely about judgment. God's ultimate aim is displayed here in the way in which worship explodes in Revelation chapter five. The destination of history is worship. Heaven exists for worship. Verse eight, 
This worship begins as the lamb takes the scroll and immediately the four living creatures and the 24 elders who have harps of praise and bowls with the prayers calling out for divine justice, they fall down in worship and they praise the lamb with a new song, a song about the mission of God. Look at verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open it, or take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This psalm exults in the worthiness of the lamb, which then leads to the mission of God, the purchasing of people for God. And notice where these people are from. Every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe and people and language and nation. Every tribe and people and language and nation. The Bible could have said the whole world. Why tribe and language and people and nation? Because wars are fought along these lines. Senses of superiority and partiality follow the well-worn pathways of these categories. The punishment at the Tower of Babel was the scattering of people with different languages and tribes and peoples, and nations. And here we see the power of redemption to destroy this broken, worldly stronghold that divides people. And instead, when King Jesus comes, he unites people from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And take note, church, this is the mission of God. That's why I believe so passionately that reaching unreached people groups are an essential part of what the church is to do. It's hard work, it's messy work, but it's what Christians are called to do. It's also why I believe working towards racial reconciliation is the work of the church. This ought not just be a dream in the future, this ought to be a dream now, where God's people can come together from different tribes and language and people and nation and love one another more than what these divisions communicate and say. And oh, for the witness of the church in our gospel evangelism of unreached people groups and in our love and unity of people who are different of us, what that would say to the watching world. And then... The worship continues, it actually expands. Think of this like a boulder being dropped in the water and ripple effects are happening. This worship crescendos, verse 11, behold I looked, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These are strung like pearls on a necklace, one after another. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. These are all the things that the lamb is worthy of. And then the worship crescendos even further to the entire created order in verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Imagine this, everything with life, 
every creature in heaven, every creature on earth and under the earth and in the sea, anything that has life in it begins to praise the Father and the Lamb. Imagine angels and seraphim, men and women, young and old. Let's go further. Eagles and ospreys, sparrows and vultures, deers and coyote, bison and elk, salmon and bluegill, orcas and sharks, jellyfish and stingray, crickets and spiders, yes, spiders, moles and worms. They all join in a chorus of worship. Anything that has God-given life in it becomes a choir that says to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Wow. One of my favorite things to do in the fall in Indiana is to walk out in the early morning when there's dew on the ground and the air is cold with a cup of hot coffee, not lukewarm coffee, should be spit out of your mouth, but hot coffee. And there's a ravine behind our house that's filled with trees and in the morning there is this symphony of territory claiming birds chirping as loud as they can. Sometimes the volume is overwhelming. Each bird claiming its stake over its territory. Imagine what it would be like to have every single living creature lend its voice to this anthem. All of this is designed to be an overwhelming moment of worship that rumbles like thunder from the throne room. Church, this is an earthquake of worship. It's a tsunami of glory. Why is revelation in the Bible? It's meant to help us make it. This vision in this chapter is meant to help you right now today, because of all the stuff you dealt with last week, for you to be reminded, there's a plan. And sin may seem to win the day and the devil may be doing his work, but the clock's ticking and there's coming a day when my king's gonna come and he's gonna take it all back and make it the way it's supposed to be. This book is a reminder that there's a way of redemption and that way comes through suffering I often talk with our pastors about embracing the ministry of absorption. The ministry of absorption. Sometimes the best thing a pastor can do, sometimes the best thing a parent can do, sometimes the best thing a teacher can do or an elder or a deacon or a friend or a small group leader is to absorb the pain of others. And how do you absorb the pain of others? Because you are reminded that somebody else absorbed your pain. And lest you think that doesn't work, let me remind you, the cross was pretty effective. This is in the Bible to remind us that our lives are being lived for the glory of the King of Kings. Not for our glory, for his. And John wants our imagination to be captured so that we can make it. Another week, and then we gather and be reminded what's true, where's life headed, who's in charge, what's really important, how do I do this? The book of Revelation is designed to help you do that. So what kind of perspective change do you need today? 
Revelation invites you, come further up, come further in, get on the hill, look at your life. It may feel really lost. It may feel like you don't know what's going on. Revelation 5 reminds us, no, 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 there's a plan of redemption. And it leads to worship. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, thank you that this compelling vision helps us to know what we need to believe and what we need to rehearse so that we can be humble and broken and trusting of you. Thank you for the reorientation of this text and even what the gathering of your people on the Lord's Day does to remind us what's true. Lord, help those who have doubted this last week, help those who've backtracked and fallen into sin. Thank you that the sacrifice of Jesus is still operational today. So Lord, capture our hearts, we pray, with the worthiness of a King Jesus so that we can know how we ought to live. And we pray this in the name of the Lamb of God who's worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.